welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I've visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa, and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen, and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company, and thank you very much indeed for joining me. And before we begin today's episode, I'd just like to apologise for any problems that you may be experiencing with the sound in this. Um, To say I've had some IT problems this week would be something of an understatement. And um, my uh, PC and recording equipment that I normally use is currently in bits on the desk of a very nice man called Barney who's putting my computer back together for me. So I've had to find an alternative means of recording this week's podcast. And um, please accept my apologies if the quality of the sound is not up to the standard that you would normally expect from us. But I know you're all lovely people and will forgive us uh, this minor aberration. And I apologise in advance if it's any slight on your eardrums. And if you're a new listener to the podcast, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you along. And for those of you who are old sweats and returning customers, thank you for your continued support. And if you are enjoying what you are listening to, then of course, please don't forget to subscribe from wherever you download your podcast from. And that way, you're made aware as soon as a new podcast gets released. So what's been occurring at Footsteps HQ this week? Well, it's been quite busy. I had the uh, great pleasure on Wednesday of being uh, at the home of England Rugby at Twickenham Stadium in company with my good friend Julian Lewis, who's one of my supporters on Patreon. And we had the absolute privilege of uh, joining Phil McGowan, who's the curator of the Rugby Museum there, to have a sort of behind-the-scenes tour and uh, find out a little bit more about how rugby contributed towards World War One, And what's really exciting about it is it's going to be our first vlog that uh, we're going to produce for the uh, podcast. It will be uploaded to the Footsteps of the Fallen YouTube channel rather in due course and really looking forward to being able to share some of the amazing things that we got to see. Uh, it was a real privilege to be able to actually go into the England dressing room and down the tunnel out onto the pitch where we saw the area where the soil from the grave of Ronald Paulton Palmer was brought back from Belgium by Lewis Moody and uh, buried at Pitchside. It was a, a very uh, emotional and very emotive thing to uh, to see and uh, I hope you enjoy the vlog when it gets released. And um, I also spent an afternoon sitting in a local churchyard on the War Memorial being uh, filmed for a uh, internet program that is going to be released in due course. It's not something I've actually done before and I have to admit it's not something I'm entirely comfortable with but um, it was uh, quite enjoyable in the end and uh, I look forward to telling you more about this over the coming weeks and months uh, as I'm able to let you know what it was related to and why we were doing it. I'm also at the final stage of just the last proofreading for the uh, book that I'm due to be publishing in uh, early 2022 that I've written with my good friend Simon. Uh, It's called Remember Him at the Altar and it's the story of the men from my old school who died 
during the First World War and the sacrifices that they made and about how schools went about remembering the dead in the aftermath of World War One. It's uh, very exciting, obviously, to be able to see one's name on the cover of a book. Uh, I doubt very much it's going to be winning the Booker Prize or anything like that, but uh, something I'm very proud of. And um, certainly when the book is released, I will be doing a giveaway on the podcast where I will uh, be giving away a signed copy of the book to uh, one of our listeners as a means of saying thank you to you for your continued support of the podcast. Um, something a little bit different before we get actually into the podcast itself. Um, I had a couple of uh, questions come in from people via email during the week and uh, I thought it might be rather interesting to uh, perhaps um, uh, answer them because it may well be something that uh, some of you who are listening have wondered the same things and um, our first question came from uh, one of our listeners, a lady called Caroline who is uh, living down in Kent and she asked how long generally does it take to produce each episode and um, it really sort of varies. Those uh, those episodes that involve an interview with somebody generally take longer to do but if it's just me sitting in front of the microphone, uh, the actual recording process probably takes somewhere in the region of about an hour and the editing probably takes uh, about sort of two to two and a half hours, something like that. It's where I get rid of all of the ums, ers and me sort of scratching and grunting into the microphone and hopefully sort of like allows things to balance up and produce some decent sound for you uh, apart from today, obviously. And yeah, so each episode, I'd say probably about uh, some of the region of three to three and a half hours, something like that. And I was also asked a a question by Liam, who is in uh, Northern Ireland and said, do I script the podcast and um uh, the simple answer is uh no no i don't um i um in fact i generally don't decide what i'm going to talk about until about 10 minutes before i sit down in front of the microphone and i come up with an idea press record sit and talk away and then just obviously edit the bits out of it that i don't want i did try towards the end of uh last season to get all organized and produce a podcast plan and you know be very religious about what I was going to be recording each week and uh, I, that lasted about a week before I got annoyed with it and threw it in the bin because uh, I don't like being restricted to a timetable really I don't know uh, from one day to the next what I'm going to feel like talking about so the luxury of not having to follow a rigid timetable um, I prefer because uh, it may well be actually on that day I don't feel like talking about the particular subject that I'd written down so um yep no I don't script them this is a a sort of um, about as sort of raw as it can get it's really just me sitting here waffling on and um, talk about whatever really comes into my head so where are we in today's episode, Through the Footsteps of the Fallen. Well, as uh, those of you who are regular listeners will know, some of the things that I like doing is uh, covering perhaps some of the lesser known areas of the battlefields of World War One. perhaps those actions or locations that maybe don't get as much coverage as uh, other more famous actions. And uh, we're going to keep going with that theme today. And we're going to uh, be back on the Somme, just um, adjacent to something we looked at in a previous episode when we recorded the episode on Trones Wood. And just to the east of Trones Wood is a small French farming village by the name of Guillemont. And it was the scene of much fighting during 1916, particularly from the end of July to the beginning of September. And it was an area that was described by one veteran who served there as being the worst place he fought at during his four years of fighting in World War One. So let's find out what happened 
at the village of Guillemot as we begin today's journey walking through the footsteps of the fallen. The village of Guillemot itself is a, a nondescript, very small farming community surrounded by fields and woodlands. It's very typical of the small villages of this part of the Somme battlefield. And if you were to take the village of Guillemont itself as being the centre of a clock face. There are various points around the battlefield that were particularly significant in the action that took place here that we're going to look at today. Approximately 2,000 metres away from Guillemont at 11 o'clock is the small village of Longueval and immediately adjacent to Longueval uh, is the southern edge of Delville Wood. A thousand metres away at one o'clock is the small village of Ganshi. And at nine o'clock, at about 1,300 metres away from the village of Guillemont, is the teardrop-shaped hulking mass of Trones Wood. There were two locations just immediately outside the village of Guillemont that were to play a significant part in the fighting in the Somme battle. The first was a small quarry which was located just to the north of the village and uh, it had been heavily fortified by the Germans and slightly further north than the quarry was the railway station which provided uh, a railway line that ran from Longueval and through Trones Wood and was a vital point in the line for the Germans to defend and in the area of dead ground that was between Troneswood and Guillemont were a number of um, points that were strategically very significant during the fighting itself. In the southern part of this area of the battlefield was a German strong point by the name of Maltzhorn Farm. And uh, like many of the farms on this part of the Somme, it had been incredibly heavily fortified by the Germans and presented a formidable obstacle. And it's very significant as well, uh, Maltzhorn Farm, because it is the most southerly point on the whole of the Western Front that at that time was held by the British. It was here that the British and French armies abutted each other. Uh, so it was obviously a very strategically important point, not just for the Allies, but also for the Germans as well. On the road that runs between uh, Montauban and Guillemont, uh, about 200 metres south of the roads, uh, near to where the modern Guillemont Road War Cemetery now stands, was a small coppice of trees that was known as Arrowhead Cops. And it was a very distinctive point on the uh, battlefield and uh, it features um, quite heavily in the fighting that took place in this area. And then heading further north, just before one comes to uh, Delville Wood, was another strong point that was known as Waterloo Farm. And it's slightly confusing, actually, because it wasn't a farm at all. But it was called Waterloo Farm to differentiate it from other buildings that were on the road from Longueval to Guillemont, but it was actually what was uh, called a, a sucre. It was, it was a sugar factory. And um, it's, uh, like so many other parts, had been heavily fortified by the Germans into a strong point that had to be captured in order to allow attacks and, uh, and further attacks to progress. Uh, the sugar factory itself was almost completely destroyed during the fighting and um, it was eventually rebuilt after the war had finished. One of the problems that the British faced in trying to capture the village of Guillemont is that um, any approach to it 
was overlooked by the Germans. To come from Trones Wood towards Guillemont meant going up a one valley down the side of another and then up another slope to the village where the village sat on the top of a small ridge. And the Germans themselves, I say, had a commanding view of the battlefield. It's a really very dangerous place to be indeed and um, not in any way suited towards a frontal infantry attack. But, as we've said, it was a strategically very important location and therefore its capture was an essential part, uh, not just of local operations, but also of the wider Somme campaign as a whole. The first real attempt to take Guillemot village was on the night of the 23rd of July. And the unenviable task was given to men of the 19th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, and men of the Green Howards, the West Yorkshire Regiment. The attack itself was wholly unsuccessful, and uh, the men of the Manchester Regiment in particular paid an extremely heavy price for the lack of artillery support that they were afforded, and German machine guns had a a field day, and uh, the following morning, the fields around the village of Guillemot were carpeted with the dead of the men of the Manchester Regiment. It wasn't just German machine gun fire that reaped a terrible toll on the Manchester Regiment. The battalion war diary records an incident that happened to a party of 25 men who were heading up towards the front line once the attack had begun. And they were walking up a road, sorry, marching up a road, sorry, um, when an ammunition truck went past and the truck was actually hit by a German shell and the explosion was so severe that in the aftermath, not a single trace could be found of any of the 25 men who happened to be in the vicinity when the truck exploded. The following morning, the next attack took place, this time by members of the 8th Brigade, and it was the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Scots and the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, who once again had the task of trying to capture Guillemot. They too approached from the direction of Trones Wood, and really, to repeat a tragically similar story, they too were almost completely annihilated in no man's land, by withering, accurate German machine gun and rifle fire. It was during uh, the fighting here that uh, a particularly unsavoury incident was recorded in the war diary of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Scots Fusiliers. They were held in trenches when a bombardment of the German lines took place from trench mortars that were located on the edge of Trones Woods and following this bombardment a large number of Germans were seen crossing no man's land with their helmets removed and their rifles thrown away and um, obviously unarmed and they appeared to be in the process of surrendering so a party of men from the Royal Scots Fusiliers went out to accept their surrender and as soon as they got close to the German soldiers they were mown down by rifle fire. It was obviously a a scam and um, obviously completely not the done thing. And uh, the following day in uh, a similar area, another party of Germans were seen to be surrendering. And this time, I think it was a case really of once bitten and twice shy. And the German soldiers, whether they were trying to surrender legitimately or not, were simply shot dead in the middle of no man's land, almost as payback for the trickery that had been meted out the previous day. 
after these initial attacks had failed, uh, there was a period of consolidation of positions. And um, no man's land at that time was a particularly unpleasant place to be. Of course, there was the potential shelter of Trones Wood, but this was subjected on a, a daily, uh, almost hourly basis to heavy an accurate German artillery fire. So it really was a, a very, very uh, dangerous and very unpleasant place for soldiers to be. The weather at this particular time certainly did no favours to the men. It alternated between hot and musky days to days of uh, torrential rainfall. And um, it really was a, a very unpleasant place where there were flash flooding and dry ground suddenly turned to mud and men would find themselves often up to their waists in cold water and mud only to have the following day of blazing sunshine. And it was also a very, very difficult uh, location for the clearing of the battlefield. Uh, there are many reports of men who served in the trenches near Trones Wood and, and in front of Guillemont of the large numbers of dead that were lying unburied. And of course, one can only imagine the uh, the sort of putrefaction that was brought on by hot weather. And um, this did uh, no um, favours for alleviating the problem of rats, which was uh, ever common in the trenches. But um, one of the sort of contemporary reports that comes from Guillemot remarks about the sheer size of the rats. There were rats that were the size of large cats or or small dogs. And um, one uh, man who was serving as a lance corporal in the um, Leinster Regiment recorded in his diary that he was on sentry duty and heard an almighty disturbance and he watched two enormous rats fighting in front of the trench parapet for possession of a severed hand that had obviously been bitten off the corpse of a corpse that was lying in no man's land. The same Lance Corporal went on to report that sentry duty at night in this sector was one of the most unpleasant things that he had to do. He said it was incredibly unnerving to be standing on duty and you could hear the cries of the wounded from no man's land desperate for help. But the British knew that any attempt to go out and rescue them or provide support would mean instant death and he said that it was one of the most enormous feelings of helplessness that he'd ever experienced in his whole life of knowing that there were men out there dying and he could do nothing at all to help them and he said the sounds of those summer evenings of the cries of the wounded on the gentle summer evening breeze were something that was going to stay with him for the rest of his life. The next attack against Guillemot didn't take place until the 30th of July, and it was during this attack that the two features of the quarry and the railway station were to play a significant role and caused huge numbers of casualties to the attacking troops. It wasn't all, however, bad news. In the southern sector of the battlefield, Maltshorn Farm was successfully captured by men of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Scots Fusiliers. It was once Maltshorn Farm had been captured, however, that the problems really started to come for the British. And in particular, it was the men from Manchester who once again took the full force of the German counterattack. Uh, men of the 18th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, were coming up from Trones Wood to reinforce the line to the north of Maltshorn Farm to support the Scots who were holding the position. And what happened was they became caught in German 
crossfire in enfilade fire and were cut down as they went across no man's land and they suffered an enormous amount of casualties and very few if any of them actually made it to the Scottish positions around Maltzhorn Farm. Despite these problems um, some men did make it to Maltzhorn Farm and having linked up with the Scotsmen they managed to make their way into the western outskirts of the village of Guillemot. And they were supposed to be supported from the north by men of the 16th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment. But as they advanced towards their objective of the station, they discovered that the British artillery bombardment had been ineffective and they were confronted by enormously thick and deep belts of barbed wire that was completely uncut. And uh, they were trapped in a pocket being fired on from the front, being fired on from the north and being fired on from the south. And uh, contemporary reports from uh, German machine gunners that they simply actually didn't have to aim. They just pulled the trigger and shot the men of the Manchester Regiment dead as soon as they appeared in front of the trenches. It was likened by one German rifleman as being like a shooting game at a fairground. The comparative success of the Scots' attack to the south put them in an incredibly difficult uh, predicament and an incredibly difficult situation. Because the advance of the Manchesters had failed to the north of them, there were parties of isolated men from the Royal Scots trapped in Guillemot, and uh, it was inevitable that a German counterattack was going to be launched. Uh, normally, this would have been repulsed by accurate and heavy British artillery fire. But for once, British artillery were reticent to be firing on their own men. And it meant really that the men of the Scots Fusiliers were effectively um, trapped in Guillemot. And the results were inevitable that they were driven out that afternoon with very heavy losses indeed. It was during this fighting on the afternoon of the 30th of July that the first Victoria Cross for the actions at Guillemot was won by a man by the name of Sergeant Evans. George Evans was the company Sergeant Major of the 18th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, who were also known as the 3rd Manchester Pals. He won his Victoria Cross for exemplary bravery in the delivering of messages to Battalion HQ. Um, a number of urgent messages have been sent through to relay to Battalion HQ the precarious situation that the Manchester Regiment found themselves in and to ask for urgent help. And every single runner who had been sent to deliver the message had been shot dead by accurate German rifles. And realising the importance and the predicament that the regiment was in, the company sergeant major took it upon his own back to try and deliver the message. So he had to cover a distance of almost 700 metres that was completely exposed from three sides by German observation and German machine gun fire. And he, even though he was wounded, he successfully managed to deliver the message and then went back over the 700 metres again, hopping from shell hole to shell hole to go back to his men and support them in the fighting in the front line. Unfortunately, during his return mission, he was wounded again and was found in a shell hole by a German patrol and was subsequently taken capture and served the rest of the war as a prisoner of war. And he received his Victoria Cross from the King in 1920. And he holds the distinction 
of being the last World War I Victoria Cross to be gazetted after the war had finished. And it was this delay in awarding the Victoria Cross that caused one member of the press corps from the Manchester Evening News to refer to Evans as the better late than never VC. And this was a sobriquet that stuck with him for the rest of his life until he died at the age of 50. When one looks at the village of Guillemont and its location and the excellence of the German defences, it's really no surprise whatsoever that the attacks on the 23rd and the 30th were ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, Infantry were being sent across land that was overlooked from all directions, had no cover, and they were attacking one of the most heavily defended villages anywhere on the Somme battlefield. Over the following days, there were backwards and forwards tit-for-tat engagements between the British and the Germans, but no ground was really taken or lost, and it was decided that a further frontal assault against the village was going to take place on the 8th of August. In a similar pattern to what had happened on the infamous first day of the Battle of the Somme, the attacks of the 8th took place after a heavy British artillery bombardment, but the Germans had constructed their lines in such a way that they had deep underground dugouts made of concrete that could survive almost all but the heaviest of shelling. And um, it was felt very much that the artillery was going to be very successful and the task of attacking the village was given to men of the King's Liverpool Regiment. And in accordance with their allotted timetable, as soon as the artillery bombardment had finished, men from the 1st, 8th and 1st, 10th King's Liverpool Regiment advanced across the open ground from Trones Wood and they got to within 100 metres of the German line when German machine gunners appeared from their underground fortresses, set up their machine guns and simply mowed down the men from Liverpool like a scythe cutting through corn. It was a sad reflection of the British approach of simply trying the same thing the same tactic time and time and time again and it uh, really sort of does conform to the stereotyped image we have of world war one of infantry soldiers being simply mown down in no man's land by accurate and heavy german machine gun fire a similar fate befell the men of the first fourth king's own yorkshire light infantry and when you read the battalion war diaries for the regiments that were involved in these attacks it seems very unlikely that a single soldier made it beyond 100 to 150 meters past the british front there was a report from one of the officers of the liverpool regiment who was absolutely certain that at least some of his men had made it to the german front line and the reason he knew this was because through his binoculars he could see their bodies hanging on the German barbed wire. There was one German position that was uh, featured on trench maps that was known ominously as Machine Gun House that seems to have been responsible for causing many of the casualties to the men of the Liverpool Regiment. As we've mentioned, um, in between Trones Wood and Guillemot was a small coppice of trees known as Arrowhead Copse. And it was in the vicinity of this copse on the afternoon of the 8th of August that 2nd Lieutenant Gabriel Curry of 3rd Battalion, the South Lancashire Regiment, won the Victoria Cross for his exemplary actions of bravery 
Curry was responsible for supervising the digging in of men in the middle of no man's land. And he did this with remarkable coolness and calmness, despite the fact that he was being shot at and uh, was subjected to heavy artillery fire at the time. And he repeatedly exposed himself above the parapet to uh, encourage and enthuse his men to keep digging in and keep persevering at the task that they had to achieve. And it was whilst this was going on that he received information that his commanding officer, Major Swainson, had been seriously wounded and was lying out in no man's land. On his own initiative, he went out into no man's land under heavy fire and successfully located the body of Major Swainson. Uh, And Swainson was by all accounts a, a big a big man. He's a football player and a keen sportsman and uh, quite an imposing figure. And under heavy German machine gun and rifle fire, Curry picked Major Swainson's body up off the ground, put it over his shoulder and carried him back to the British lines. And it was for this act of incredible bravery and heroism that Curry was subsequently awarded the Victoria Cross. It was the following day on the 9th of August that one of the most remarkable men to serve in the First World War performed the first of a number of deeds of heroism that was to see him become the only man during the First World War to be awarded the Victoria Cross twice. And in fact, he became one of only three men who've received a bar to their medal. Um, And I think what makes his story all the more remarkable is that he was in effect a non-combatant. He was a doctor. His name was Noel Godfrey Chavas and he was the medical officer at the 1st 10th King's Liverpool Regiment. Uh, He was a very, very interesting man. He um, was the son of the Bishop of Liverpool. He was a student at uh, Magdalen College School in Oxford, uh, represented Great Britain at athletics in the 1908 Olympic Games and he qualified as a doctor before enlisting into the King's Liverpool Regiment. During the fighting in this area, Chavas had himself been seriously wounded but he refused to go to a regimental aid post and uh, insisted on remaining in the trenches where despite his wounds he went out repeatedly into no man's land and brought back in a large number of wounded men who undoubtedly would have succumbed to either their injuries or the inclement weather were it not for the bravery of Chavas going out and rescuing them and bringing them in into the British lines all the time whilst under observation and heavy German fire. Despite the fact that he had been seriously wounded he remained doing this in the trenches for almost two days before he finally collapsed from sheer exhaustion and eventually then received treatment for his wounds. And as said, he was awarded the Victoria Cross and went on in 1917 to win a bar to his Victoria Cross up in Belgium, where sadly he was to lose his life and he lies buried in Brandhoek, New Military Cemetery. As was so often the case, the attacks on the 9th of August were unsuccessful and attacks were repeated again on the 12th of August, where a joint Anglo-French offensive was launched in an attempt to take the village of Guillemont. This was also unsuccessful and it's reckoned that at one stage during the afternoon of the 12th of August there was not a single man unwounded anywhere in the battlefields to the west of Guillemont. And as the sun set 
on the 12th of August, the battlefield around Guillemot was carpeted with the dead of the British and the French, and the village of Guillemot remained staunchly in German hands. As we've mentioned, the weather at this particular time was causing no end of problems. There were alternating days of blistering hot sunshine and torrential rain, and this turned the battlefield into something of a morass of mud and water. And it was at this point that supplies began to run desperately short for the men, and um, it was incredibly difficult for transport lorries to come up to the reserve areas and the rest lines simply because of the sheer quantities of mud that were found on the roads around the villages behind the lines and it's um, recorded at one stage in uh, around about the 16th of August that no less than 134 lorries were stuck on the road behind the lines with much needed supplies that could have supported the men and it was around about this time that one regiment got its first taste of action around Guillemont it was the third battalion the rifle brigade and one of their members was in fact a Frenchman who had been studying at university. He was the famous author and poet uh, Rodolphe Valned who um, had been at Oxford when war broke out and had accepted a commission into the rifle brigade. He was sadly to lose his life in the fighting at Guillemont on the 23rd of August 1916. And the Rifle Brigade were blooded, as it were, at Guillemot in the next round of attacks to try and take the village, which took place on the 17th of August. The objective of the 3rd Rifle Brigade that afternoon was to capture Guillemot Station, and they were supported to uh, their right-hand side by men of the 8th Buffs, the West Kent Regiment, who were tasked with attacking a newly constructed German trench that was about... 400 metres north of the village and was once again extremely heavily defended. The fighting in this particular area ebbed and flowed during the day. There were gains made by the British that was quickly relinquished in German counter-attacks and it was very much tit-for-tat attacking. And it was during this fighting that one of uh, the most famous names in English rugby was severely wounded. He was the commanding officer of the 7th Battalion, the Northamptonshire Regiment, and his name was Edgar Mobbs. And at the beginning of the war, he had tried to enlist, but um, was deemed to be too old. So he went round the rugby clubs of Northamptonshire and he recruited over 250 men to join him. Aside from being a stalwart of the Northampton team, Mobbs also was an England international and the men that recruited uh, became known as Mobbs's own. And uh, he was somebody that, uh, I say, we heard a lot about when I was down at Twickenham earlier on this week and uh, will feature, as I say, very heavily in the vlog. And he is something of a hero in the town of Northampton. Indeed, there is a match held every year at Franklin's Gardens, even this day, which is between the East Midlands and the Barbarians, and it is for the Mobs Trophy. Uh, he's also commemorated by the Mobs Gates at Franklin's Gardens, which is the home of Northampton rugby and um, it uh, really was um, something of a shock wounded and sent uh, a sort of real shockwave through the troops that this iconic figure could uh, have been wounded so severely to necessitate being evacuated. It was during the fighting around the station on the 18th of August that an officer from the Rifle Brigade by the name of 2nd Lieutenant Marsden Smedley was to lose his life and uh, 
there is on the battlefield one of the few remaining private memorials that were erected on the battlefield that was erected by his parents. And Marsden Smedley came from a uh, sort of fairly privileged background. His family were uh, uh, haberdashers and drapers and owned a, a very famous chain of clothing stores. And in fact, if you look um, on the internet now at uh, John Smedley Knitwear, you'll see that family continues to this day. He was a pupil at Harrow School and served in the officer training corps. He was a prefect and was also captain of football and captain of cricket. Uh, He does uh, hold an unfortunate cricketing record, which really is nothing to be proud of, um, that he was in the annual Eton versus Harrow match, which was played at Lords, where he was dismissed for a pair. So he got a duck in each innings. But when he was dismissed in the second innings, he was actually out to a hat-trick. And I believe, uh, and I'm sure there is a cricket statistician out there, someone who will correct me if I'm wrong, that that is the only time that uh, a batsman has ever been out for a pair on a hat-trick at Lords in cricketing history. He left school in the summer of 1915 and enlisted immediately into the army. He went through his training and he arrived out in France in June 1916. He um, wrote a, a series of letters to his parents and his sister and the last letter that he wrote um, recorded uh, his gratitude that they had sent him out uh, a rather nice metal chain and a metal identity disc to wear round his neck. And it's uh, he stated that it was much more uh, comforting to wear than sort of cardboard, pressed cardboard identity discs that soldiers were issued with. He went into action on the 18th of August, 18th, 19th of August rather, um, near the railway station. And uh, he was leading his company when they were held up by a German machine gun. And uh, the story goes that um, Smedley charged the German machine gun. He shot dead one of the men, one of the crew of the machine gun. And as he jumped down into the trench, he came face to face with a German officer who pulled out his pistol and shot Marsden Smedley through the head. Despite being in possession of a brand new identity disc, it was almost impossible to find Smedley's body. And in fact, he uh, is um, commemorated on the Tietvahn Memorial. But his father never gave up the search after the war to try and find the body. And he was able to pinpoint the almost exact spot that his son had been killed and duly attempted to purchase the land from the landowner. The area that he uh, discovered where his son's body had been was fenced off and he was extremely upset in uh, February 1921 when he received a letter from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to say that the land where the fencing stood was being reclaimed by the station and station buildings and would not be possible to maintain this site. Uh, Thankfully, from his perspective, he was just in the final stage of negotiation to purchase the land, which he duly did. He erected a stone memorial to the memory of his son with an inscription that reads as follows. In loving memory of George Futvoy Marston Smedley of Lee Green, 2nd Lieutenant of the 3rd Rifle Brigade, aged 19, who fell in an attack on Guillemot on August the 18th, 1916, during the Battle of the Somme, and lies here in an unknown grave. Lively and enthusiastic in life, in death serene. 
The attacks and counter-attacks against Guillemont were to continue for another two weeks, with neither side being able to take the advantage. But what did happen uh, unquestionably was that the body count for the British began to rise. Every attack and every assault led to hundreds of men being killed without any advance or strategic gain being taken against the village itself. It was during this period at the end of August that men of the 16th Irish Division were posted to the Guillemont sector and the orders that they were given were very clear. You must take the village of Guillemont, whatever the cost. The fighting at Guillemont was the first operations that the 16th Irish Division had uh, undertaken on the Somme. And whilst Guillemont itself was a a fairly unremarkable village, it, it was to prove a tough nut to crack for the men from Ireland. It had in fact taken several months for the men of the 16th Irish Division to recover from the mauling that they'd received in late April when they were looking after the lines in the northern part of France near village of Hullock where they were subjected to German gas attacks and um, they were absolutely decimated as a division. It had really taken them a considerable period of time to rebuild and become an effective fighting force. And the 16th Irish were withdrawn from the Hullock sector on the 24th of August 1916. And they were transported via cattle trucks on the railway to Amiens and then marched the 22 miles to Bray-sur-Somme, where they formed part of 14th Corps, who were charged with the attack that was going to take the village of Guillemont once and for all. It's worth bearing in mind throughout all of the fighting here that uh, Guillemot, as we've already mentioned, was really a stepping stone through to other areas that needed to be captured, most of all the village of Ganshi, which lay to the northeast of Guillemot and uh, was uh, essential to be captured so as to eliminate a salient that ran around Delville Wood up to the north in preparation for the major attacks that were going to take place on the Somme in the middle of September. But to capture Ganshi, it was necessary, first of all, to capture Guillemot. And for those of us who are interested in the fighting here, we're very lucky in that there is an exceptional memoir written by a man who served in the 2nd Leinster Regiment. Uh, His name was Colonel Francis Hitchcock, and his memoir was called Stand To. And during this, in this memoir, rather, he described watching the artillery bombardment on Guillemot, and he describes it as following... Shell fire was hellish all afternoon, box barrages were put down all around and the earth was going up like volcanoes, completely smothering. During a bombardment, one developed a craze for two things, water and cigarettes. Few could ever eat under an intense bombardment, especially on the Somme, where every now and then a shell would blow pieces of mortality or complete bodies which had been putrefying and slap into one's trench like a wet fish. In the fighting on the 23rd of August, Guillemot Station to north of the village was finally captured. And by this point, the British surrounded Guillemot, both from the west and the south. But the Germans still hold the bulk of the village. And of course, this blocks the advance through to Gashi. And the 16th Irish were tasked with taking the village. Unfortunately, uh, despite their best planning, the assault was repeatedly delayed by bad weather, but it was finally agreed that it would go ahead 
on September the 3rd and would be spearheaded by the 20th Light Division and the 16th Irish, who were charged, as we said, with doing what no one had managed to do before and finally wrestling the village of Guillemot out of German hands. As the men of the 16th Irish headed towards Guillemot, they were led by the 8th Munsters, who were carrying a beautiful banner of the Sacred Heart that had been made for the regiment by local women from the town of Limerick and nuns from the Good Shepherd Convent in Limerick. And this banner was carried with great pride onto the battlefield and they were assured by the nuns that whoever carried the banner would have victory assured to them. And as the men from the Irish regiments lay down in shallow trenches at 4am on the morning of the 3rd of September, they waited for the assault and from behind the lines they heard the eerie tune of the regimental pipers who were playing tunes such as the white cockade, the wearing of the green and a nation once again. And in front of them lay the remains of Guillemot. It had literally been reduced to a skeletal shell. And we are also very lucky as well when we look at First World War literature that there is a German written narrative written by a German soldier called Ernst Junger who wrote Storm and Steel, and it's widely regarded as possibly one of the greatest books of war literature. And um, he described that he knew he had arrived in what had once been a village because of the colour of the earth. And in the book, he says, the shell holes there were of a whiter colour by reason of the houses which had been ground to powder. Guillemont railway station lay in front of us. It was smashed to bits like a child's plaything. You could search in vain for one wretched blade of grass. This churned-up battlefield was ghastly. Among the living lay the dead. As we dug ourselves in, we found them in layers, stacked one on top of the other. One company after another had been shoved into the drum fire and steadily annihilated. The corpses were covered with masses of soil turned up by the shell, and the next company advanced in the place of the fallen. With typical German ingenuity, the Germans had turned Guillemot into a veritable death trap. They'd fortified the cellars and the rubble, and it was into this sort of living hell that the Irish division was thrown. They had to wait eight hours in no man's land for a bombardment to begin at midday on the 23rd. And the delay was to give done was done deliberately to give the Germans less time for a counterattack. On the northern end of Guillemot, the 7th Leinsters lay down in trenches that were little more than scrapes in the fields, and they were so shallow that if a man sit up to light a cigarette, he would most likely be shot through the head by a German sniper. The Irish battalions who were involved in the Battle of Guillemot were the 7th Leinsters, the 6th Connacht Rangers, the 8th Royal Munster Fusiliers, and the 6th Royal Irish, and their assault was to be made by following behind a creeping barrage and they were supported by men from the 10th King's Royal Rifle Corps and the 6th Connacht Rangers. The Connacht Rangers, unfortunately, as so often happened, suffered almost 200 casualties from being hit by their own artillery whilst they were waiting to go into the battle. And it was immediately as the fighting began that the commanding officer of the Connacht Rangers, Lieutenant Colonel John Lennox Cunningham, he was killed as soon as he stood up on the parapet to wave his men on with his stick. And undaunted, and one might even perhaps say inspired by seeing their beloved commanding officer killed, 
the Irishman pressed ahead with absolute fervour and vigour. And within minutes, the Germans' frontline positions around the village had been overrun by hand-to-hand fighting by the Irishmen. The men of the 7th Leinsters made a dash for the German lines as soon as the artillery barrage was lifted, and they caught the Germans completely by surprise. And Men of the 20th Brigade, reinforced by troops from the Oxford and Bucks Light Infantry and the Somerset Light Infantry, took their second positions on time by leapfrogging, as it were, over the top of the men of the Connacht. And by 10 to 3 in the afternoon, all of the objectives had been gained and the road that led to Gashi outside the village was captured by men of the 6th the Royal Irish Regiment who moved forward to the sound of their battalion Piper. The British captured over 700 wounded and unwounded Germans and finally, after six weeks of fighting, Guillemont belonged to the British. The Irish won two Victoria Crosses in the taking of Guillemont. The first went to Private Thomas Hughes, who was serving with the Connacht Rangers, who, although being seriously injured, had his wound dressed and returned to the front line, where he single-handedly attacked and disabled a German machine gun. And the other Victoria Cross went to a man by the name of Lieutenant John Holland of the 7th Leinsters, and he displayed extraordinary pluck and dash in leading his men on a bombing party which cleared German trenches and captured over 50 prisoners and allowed the British and Irish to successfully advance into the edges and centre village. The Irish paid a terrible price for its heroics in capturing the villages of Guillemot and subsequently Ganshi and of the 11 thousand officers and men who arrived in this part of the Somme on the 1st of September, over 4,300 of them became casualties, with over a 1,000 of them being killed. Many of the soldiers who served at Guillemot were never to forget what they saw there. And I'm going to end this with a description of one NCO from the Leinster Regiment, who simply said, Guillemot, was the worst place I fought at in four years of war. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod, or you can have a look on our Instagram feed, which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, We've also got obviously our website, which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that. And you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com. And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsthefallen.com, and look at the page marked Support Us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and make a donation there, or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any 
help or assistance that you may be able to provide would be gratefully received. So all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Thank you and goodbye.